let's cultivate our motivation. At lunch today, I was watching the leaves of the willow tree blow in the wind. And there just seemed to be so many leaves, like uncountable leaves. And I thought that every single sentient being has been my parents more times than that uncountable number of leaves. And how, therefore, close we are, actually, with each and every sentient being. There's some kind of very intimate, personal connection with everybody. But when we think of just some person that we hardly know or that we don't like or whatever, then we say, well, how could I have had such an intimate connection with that person over so many lifetimes? And that's hard to understand because we're thinking of that person as always being who they are this lifetime. We're grasping very strongly that there's a real person in that body somewhere mixed in with the body and mind, some real personality. And then when we try and think of that personality in other bodies, it just doesn't fit. But that's because we're seeing the person as some findable personality, some real thing. If we see a person as what's merely labeled in dependence upon the momentary continuity of consciousness, you know, residing in or being affiliated with whatever body at whatever time, we see that there's no real person there, but just a nominally existent one. Then we can see a little bit how a nominally existent person could have been our parents. And how we could have been very close with that person in many, many lifetimes. Because they're not some fixed personality with some fixed essence. And there's no fixed relationship. So even this lifetime, when we meet each other, we all look so real to each other. We look so real to ourselves. And yet, we're all just appearances. There's no real person there at all in any of us. But there is a merely exist, a merely labeled person, just very slightly labeled, independence upon 
the body and mind that happen to be there at any particular moment. And so for that merely labeled person, we generate love and compassion. Knowing that because they're empty, they have the Buddha potential. And so aspiring for full enlightenment, even though we're merely labeled, in order to best benefit them. So we were reading from the second sutra in the Diga Nikaya, which also has some passages in common from the first sutra, which was the Brahmajala Sutra. That's also in the Diga Nikaya. So um, we're talking about, uh, you know, sila or uh, ethical conduct. And we've been through, you know, the ten destructive actions again and again and again, and especially these seven, the seven first ones of body speech. We heard them again and again and again in teachings. Um, she might wonder, well, why are we going over them again here, too? How about something more unique about monastic life? Um... The reason I personally find these passages very inspiring is because um, the way the Buddha expressed it here, it gives me some idea of the kind of person I can become. So, you know, yesterday when when, uh, talking about being trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world, and... uh, speaking what's blameless, pleasing to the ear, agreeable, reaching the heart, urbane, pleasing and attractive to the multitude. You know, when I think of becoming a person who is like that, I feel quite inspired, you know. So instead of just little old me, it's just kind of bungling along and, you know, trying not to be too much like a bull in a china shop as I continue to crash through life breaking everything to smithereens. It gives me some kind of vision of, uh, you know, being very refined and gentle, and yet uh, with a mind that's very still and very clear, because clearly this kind of um, ethical conduct of body and speech can't be fully attained, fully completed, without the mind being very subdued. Okay, so it gives me some kind of vision of the kind of person uh, that I can become. And then when the Buddha talks about, you know, uh, how, how this person is with others, it gives me a vision of, of the benefit that we can do simply by keeping ethical conduct. Because um, all the teachings basically come down to do what you can to benefit, and if you can't benefit, then at least don't harm. 
But I think in not harming, there's also tremendous benefit. Because, okay, when we don't harm, you know, we're not harming. But then other people see us not harming. And other people see us being smooth and gentle and careful. And it gives them some vision of what they can become. And it becomes something very inspiring for them. And so this is what happens when we look at our teachers, you know. We just see our teacher's outward conduct of body and speech, and it gives us some feeling of where their mind must be and where we would like to go in our own practice. Okay, so instead of our role model being Rambo or Shasha, you know, our role model becomes uh, something different, you know, that's really inspiring. Um... And also because by going through these very, in some ways, elementary destructive actions to abandon, um, it it continually points out to me uh, the importance of these two mental factors I was talking about earlier, integrity and uh, consideration for others. Okay, and so with a real sense of integrity, you know, just feeling, it's, it's an incredible sense of self-respect and respect for our own spiritual practice, respect for our own welfare. And so not wanting to harm others because we feel I'm a Dharma, a dharma practitioner and this is unbecoming of the kind of Dharma practitioner that I want to be. So it's, you know, abandoning careless actions or harmful actions by by referring to ourself. In other words, we, we have an image of what we would like to be like. And, you know, this these words I'm about to say or this action I'm about to do just uh, does not match with that internal sense of integrity that that I feel so strongly in my own heart. Yeah. And so really wanting to live from that space in our own heart of integrity instead of living from the space of confusion, which leads to deceit and covering up and all those things that we were talking about this morning at breakfast. And then also, you know, talking about these actions to abandon gives me the idea of that second mental factor of consideration for others. And so knowing how our behavior and our speech affects other beings, and so wanting to abandon harmful actions, abandon harmful actions, or just being careless, reckless, or boisterous, out of consideration for other people and what it's going to do to their faith in the Dharma. You know? And so really seeing our interdependence here and that although, of course, it's it's not really suitable from the side of other sentient beings for them to take us as the embodiment of all of Buddhism and to just to to evaluate Buddhism based on one person's action. Of course, that's unreasonable from the side of others. Nonetheless, knowing that sentient beings do do that and that it can really drastically affect somebody's faith 
that could affect their spiritual practice for many, many lifetimes to come. And not wanting to harm them, not wanting to make them become confused or cynical or skeptical or disdained, um, then, you know, having restraint of, restraint of our own careless actions. Because we really want other people to be able to progress along the path in a, in a really wise, wonderful way. You know, we care about them. And so that's what I meant by not harming actually can be of incredible benefit because when other people see us behaving like that, it gives them that kind of confidence that Dharma works and some confidence that maybe they too can can become like that. Yeah. Um, so we can't go around our life always thinking, I'm going to be a good example for others. That's a disaster when we try and think to ourselves, I'm going to be a good example for others. I've tried that before and I know it's a mess. Because when you go around thinking, I'm going to be a good example, then of course you want other people to recognize you as a good example. <laughs> and as soon as we want something from other people like that, it's a mess. So, you know, not, not expecting any kind of praise or esteem or honor for other or other people even recognizing us as a good example. So letting go of all that, but just knowing that by the force of, of pure ethical conduct, then for the people who are receptive, who are open, then they, that happens and, you know, they pick up on that. Yeah, so we don't have to try and be a good example. Yeah, because of course some people will see us as one and some people won't. And we're not trying to be one. But just recognizing that for some people where there's that karma, where there's that clarity of mind, then that's how it happens. And so we care about their spiritual welfare and their long-term uh, ability to practice the Dharma. Um, so, it, you know, going over that gives me that, that kind of feeling, you know, about integrity, about consideration for others. And I find that when those two mental factors are, are very strong, then there's a very strong determination to, to practice ethical conduct, no matter what's going on. And no matter what other people say, and no matter whether people say Hare Krishna when you walk down the street, <laughs> or whether they spit at you, or whether they, you know, gasp at you for being a man when you go in a woman's bathroom if you're a nun, or whether they, you know, make fun of you for wearing a skirt if you're a guy, or, you know, all these other reactions that this, or the situation of Dharma in the world, whether people like the Sangha or don't like the Sangha, whether there's a, a, whether there's a lot of Sangha or a few Sangha, you know, I find that, that my concern with external circumstances um, fades away because 
the importance of, of this ethical restraint for myself and for, ben- for benefiting others becomes so strong in the mind. So I think that makes the mind very strong and gives us a lot of confidence to continue practicing no matter what's going on outside uh, because we really know that what we're doing is the best thing that we could be doing. When I was in um, China in 94, um, we were, where were we? I forget what town. But we met um, some Chinese nuns, some older women. And I was with um, three Chinese friends, you know, so they were speaking directly in Mandarin. Uh, And so we started talking with these nuns, and these nuns were telling us that at the time of the Cultural Revolution, they were forced to, to leave their temple, their nunnery, and as was the case with many people during the time of the Cultural Revolution, they had to go to these um, political meetings, you know, where certain people were trashed and humiliated publicly to show other people what not to be like, and where other people had to stand up and deliberately criticize uh, somebody for all of their you know, anti-communist views and anti-communist behavior and all of this kind of thing. So uh, those nuns were saying, you know, not only did they have to leave their nunnery, uh, which became a factory during the time of the Cultural Revolution, but they had to go live in some, I don't know if it was a place where animals used to stay or, you know, some out-of-the-way place. Um, But also... They had to walk through the streets with dunce caps on and placards hanging up, you know, on the front and back, uh, declaring that they were, you know, stewards of the old regime who harbored, uh, you know, um, I forget all the, the those communist words, you know, the words in the propaganda that they used to use, you know, the anybody. Yeah, what? Imperialist? Yeah, besides imperialist and, and wasn't consumerist or mater- maybe materialist or capitalist or, you know, people who were cheating the people by being religious, uh, you know, because being religious was just ridiculous and, you know. And so they had to wear these placards and walk through the, walk through the streets like that. You know, with everybody staring at them, throwing things at them, wearing dunce caps. They couldn't wear their robes. You know. And if you think, you know, how how would you fare in that kind of situation? You know, having to do that. Walking through the streets of the town where you grew up with that kind of placard. You know, having people jeer at you. And then going to these kind of meetings and being forced to leave your home and take off your robes and I mean just incredible situation and yet as soon as the situation changed the political situation in China changed and they were able to put their robes back on and go back to their nunnery they did it so that whole time you know no matter what happened 
they kept their vows. Yeah, they kept their vows even though they were being jeered at, even though they had to live in some out-of-the-way place, even though their temple and all their religious artifacts were destroyed, even, you know, despite the physical and mental hardship. And so how were they able to endure that kind of situation? Well, they had very, very strong determination. You know, determination that, that you know, the practice of ethical, you know, restraint and the practice of, of Dharma was the most valuable thing in their whole life. So no matter what other people said, no matter what happened, they just kept, kept to it. Yeah. So I think having that kind of very strong determination, that internal mental strength that isn't swayed by other things, is really important for having a happy life as a monastic. Yeah. So it comes from that integrity, that consideration from others. It comes from having checked out the path really well, and being certain about how the, or having some degree of certainty about how the path works and that it's possible to attain the result. Yeah. And so really hanging in there uh, no matter what. So some people face those kind of hindrances, you know, that let's say came from the communist regime. Other people face different kind of hindrances. And I'm saying this because we're all going to face hindrances, because hindrances are the nature of samsara. And so until we're out of samsara, there's always going to be hindrances. To think that we're going to get ordained and there's never going to be a hindrance is, you know, that's fairy tale. That doesn't happen. The samsaric mind is a hindrance in and of itself. Okay? I remember Reverend Master Eka from Shasta Abbey. He was saying that uh, one time somebody asked him, you know, well, what do you do if you're a monastic? And, you know, Miss Perfect, Miss Right just walks in the door. And he said, then you sit there and you let her walk out again. <laughs> yeah? Yeah? And, you know, so that, that's exactly it. Yeah, your mind is firm, your mind is strong. You know, the perfect person you've been waiting for, Prince Charming, walks in and you let him walk out. Why? Because you know very clean, clear what you're doing and why you're doing it and what the benefits are. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So reading from the sutras and, and getting this kind of idea of how the Buddha himself conducted himself on a day-to-day basis gives me that kind of inspiration of, okay, how can I conduct myself on a day-to-day basis? And what kind of mind do I need to have behind that to be like the Buddha was? Okay, Because the Buddha on a day-to-day basis he wasn't sitting there like all freaked out, like, oh my God, there was this gorgeous lame woman who just put an apple in my alms bowl and I'm all turned on and, oh, 
I have that negative thought. How can I have that negative thought of attachment to this woman who put the apple in my arms more? You know, I mean, the Buddha didn't do that. Okay? Yeah? And the Buddha didn't, didn't, you know, get in this thing of, oh, I was on arms around, somebody gave me a really dirty look and called me a name, and, oh, I feel so rejected and so unloved, and here I am, I'm trying to be a good Dharma practitioner for that person that gave me a dirty look. You know, everybody on my arms around gives me a dirty look. Nobody appreciates what I'm doing. I'm all alone. Poor me. You know, that that wasn't what the Buddha did. <laughs> yeah? So, you know, by, by thinking of how the, the Buddha just conducted himself physically and, and verbally, then, you know, it gives us an idea of what kind of mental state did he have. You know, because he wasn't sitting there being so uncomfortable with himself that he was uptight. And and also he wasn't just sitting there with his mind, you know, going all over to whatever gorgeous thing happened to walk in the room. And he wasn't, you know, all involved in, poor me, you know. He just did the practice, that's all. Yeah. And this happened, and it ceased. And that happened, and it ceased. And life went on, and you just, you know, you're just very centered and grounded. Yeah, and this crisis happens, and that, and this, and that, and you just know what you're doing in your life. You're like really firm and straight, not not like a, a wind in the, in the autumn breeze. I'm sorry, not like a leaf in the autumn breeze. Okay, so this kind of thing gives gives me that kind of feeling of you know how how the Buddha conducted himself, how he thought. You know, because if you're gonna, you know, be like a Buddha and be kind of, you know, have ref, refined body of speech and be very calm, you know, your mind has to be like that too. It can't always be you know, looking on the outside for somebody to appreciate us or tell us we're good or laugh at our jokes or, you know, think that we're wonderful. It's, it's just a mind that, that's really clear and straight and, you know, not needy of this and needy of that and, you know, not rebelling against this and rebelling against that and not beating up on ourselves, but just very gentle and clean clear. Mm